Good evening. Uh, sometimes I wish that I had good, funny jokes. If I had, I would tell you one right now. So let's all pretend that I do, and I did, and chuckle. Thanks, Travis, for leading us out on that. Travis is a trailblazing leader. If you have your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We conclude the uh, a chunk a wing of the museum that we're looking at through this life of christ where he is in complete control uh he was in control over a storm he was in control over demons and tonight he's in control over disease and death and it's uh it's really cool to look at we're going to look at uh, a big chunk of verses verses 21 through 43 tonight so uh strap on your seatbelt and let's Go on a ride. <laughs> uh, whatever, Travis. <laughs> uh, I think that this is a good time for us to to reiterate the theme and uh, and the point of the book of Mark. This is a book written by Mark, and Mark's source for his stories is as uh, is, is Peter, and Peter was was the man, the the single most influential, the single guy that, that was the closest to Christ during his earthly life. And so Mark is using the the insight, the knowledge of of Peter to tell these stories. And again, it's written during the time of Roman persecution. Nero is ruling Rome and Rome is uh, the biggest power in the world at this point. And Nero is highly against Christians and he kills them daily. And so in order for you to, to be a Christian, you needed a lot of courage uh, and be able to, to stay away from Nero or you would wind up dead. Also, uh, reminder, I, I've said that many times, but this is the thing I, I want to reiterate and, and us to, to remember to land on is that Mark is uh, doesn't pay much attention. He pays a little bit of attention to chronology, but more than anything, it's the story that he's trying to communicate to his people and the, the hearers. And that story is that Jesus Christ is a suffering Servant. He lays down his life. He lays down his comfort. He lays down his desires, his own self, so that he can give to people. Basically, it's a sovereign Jesus who's continually denying himself. So Mark puts all these stories together. Peter has he's traveled the globe, traveled the life with Peter, walking and, and living on mission with Peter. And Peter's told them all these stories. And Mark has has organized these stories in such a way to present Jesus as a suffering guy who denied himself continually so that we might have life. It's a suffering Messiah. It's a suffering servant so that we could have life. Always denying himself. Uh, so that's the, the gist of what the book of Mark is. And I've sort of thought about it as as walking through a museum on the life of Christ. And so this one particular wing of the museum that I've already talked about tonight is just about Jesus being in in thorough, complete control. Uh, tonight, it's a it's a very interesting dichotomy. We see uh, disease and death happening, and we see uh, a, a a very high, upstanding uh, 
very famous, everybody knows him, important guy, a religious figure, a guy named Jairus. And then we see a woman who is completely disassociated. Nobody knows her, nobody likes her, nobody is her friend. She is totally alone. And these are the two people that Jesus really encounters and and lives his life in front of it and suffers to serve these two people, an outcast and a high-standing religious man. Uh, so let's get to uh, get to the text now. First uh, verse that we'll look at is Matthew chapter five. Or Mark, I did that last week. Mark chapter five, verse twenty-one. It says, "And when Jesus had crossed again, remember last week he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, dealing with uh, with Gentile peoples and the pigs and and different people that are that are different from the Jews. So he's left the Gentile world and now gone back to the Jewish, Jewish world. He's gone back to." the area of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And remember, Mark is presenting Jesus as a suffering servant. And here, the first fact that Mark is going to let us in on is that a great crowd immediately came. There's no fanfare. There's no uh, newscast that, hey, Jesus is back. It's just people were so interested in what Jesus was and what Jesus was about and all the things that he said and did that his mere presence created a stir and people came. There's a great crowd immediately when Christ comes and sees him besides the sea. So Jesus is back in Capernaum and his reputation goes before him and there's a huge crowd around him. Uh, Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. I, Jairus, it's important to note here that when he, he begins to talk about the woman in a, in a few chapters, she's known as the woman. Jairus is known as Jairus. So this is an important guy that these people that are hearing this 30 years later from the life of Christ, 30 years after he died and, and resurrected, they would have known that there was once a guy, or maybe he, he still is, the, the ruler and leader of the synagogue. So he speaks him by name so that everybody knows who he is. So Jairus comes and falls, and seeing him, he falls down at his feet. Uh, I want to lay out some, some things about, first of all, who, who Jairus was. Jairus is, is, a, is an important guy, and as the ruler of the synagogue, he was most likely present. So far, there have been a, a couple of meetings, and there will be meetings in the future about how we can trick, how we can trap Jesus. And Jairus was at least present and probably presided over those meetings. So you can imagine, here's what's happened. There, there's been at least one that Mark ha, has has talked about where they decided, okay, how can we ask Jesus a question to, to trick him, to trap him, to say something wrong, to mess up? And... Jairus was the guy that probably presided over that meeting. He gathered all the other religious leaders. He gathered the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody who thought himself as a religious guy. He gathered them all together and says, okay, how can we trap Jesus? And so now this guy who wanted to harm Jesus, who wanted to, to take away from Jesus, who, who was envious of his power and his strength, now he comes to Jesus. And, and what's Jesus' response to him? It's, his response is to help him because the other thing I want to note about verse 22, he fell at his feet. Jairus comes, he comes, Jesus comes back across the Sea of Galilee and the first instinct of Jairus is to run to him and fall at his feet, a place of, of humility. And you've heard the stories before in churches that, you know, feet were nasty places to be and, and 
you know, people were wearing sandals in a desert and it's just nasty feet. And Jesus is no different. He doesn't have pottery, smelly, rosy feet just because he's God. He's a man and he has nasty, gross feet. And Jesus, or, and Jairus falls at his feet, a, a place in a position of, of humility. Uh, so we can learn here about, uh, about how Jesus encounters and helps a man who was out to get him. Several weeks ago, this guy presided over an event that said, how can we trap Jesus? And now this guy comes to Christ and says, help me. And Jesus immediately helps him. And it's, it's, we can draw so much. We talk about how do we be like Christ? Here's a very specific way. We love and we serve the people who are out to hurt us. That ought to bring conviction to you. Think about, I, I know we, we, we spent our last community group talking about uh, people that, that, that bother us or people that, that attack us. And, and we, we were very specific and we, 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 we've talked about it a lot. But, but here is Jesus serving this guy who is out to get him. But the difference is, is that Christ is God and Christ is always loving people and always loving his enemy. And this guy comes at him with humility. He's at his feet filled with humility and despair. This is a dignified religious man who falls at the feet of Jesus. And again, remember, verse 22 talks about there's a great crowd that's around him. Some of these people that are this great crowd are the religious people that this guy is giving charge to lead in, in the synagogue. And some of these people know that this guy is a religious man. So he's probably come dressed well, dressed appropriately. And, and I, I see, I have pictures of a dignified religious man in my head where he's, you know, a perfectly parted hair and, and his hair doesn't move and he's, he's wearing the, the, the perfect suit and, and it's dark blue and, and everything looks perfect about this guy. And yet here he comes in an undignified, filled with humility way and falls at the feet of Jesus. And remember, there are people that he's called to lead and called to be dignified for, called to be a strong religious guy in front of. But he is so led by his despair that he disregards that and falls at, at the feet of this guy. So in a very public place, in a very public place where there are people that this guy is supposed to lead, he is filled with humility to fall at the feet of Jesus. So catch the, the, the emotion of this moment and then catch the second word in verse 23. And he implored him. Implored. There is passion that's in that word. There is Please, God, you've got to help me in this word. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. Again, this is the guy who wanted to take from Jesus. And now he is such in despair and so at the end of himself that he's begging of Jesus. What his religion couldn't do for him, Jesus is and Jesus will do. That's a a point that, that I'll, I'll say again at the close. What religion could not do for this man jesus does think about that what religion can't do for you jesus will we are a people who need to have that spoken to our lives what religion what church what the corporateness of what we do what the corporateness of what church does in the world what it can't do for you jesus does own that he implored him and said Help me. This guy 
if there's anyone alive that can have anything religion gives, it's this guy. Yet he's come to the end of himself and he says, Jesus, help me. I can't do this anymore. Verse 24. And Jesus immediately went with him. Remember, Mark writes with urgency in here in this text. Jesus doesn't need to be convinced. He doesn't need to to figure out, wait a second, what do I need to do? What do I have to get done today? What are the things that are happening in my life? I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm this. I'm that. Jesus doesn't calculate any of that. Jesus goes with a man who is his enemy. Take that and, and ponder that thought for a second and think of who your enemy is and think of who the person that presses on you the most that you don't want to be around. That's this guy to Christ. And immediately Jesus goes with him. And he went with him and a great crowd followed and thronged about him. There is a huge, massive crowd around him. So there's this great crowd that's following him. And then Mark begins to write. It's, it's, it's beautiful the way that, it, that he writes. He, he has Jairus' story on both sides. And in the middle is this story that begins in verse 25 where there's this woman. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. There's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Don't let the familiarity with this passage get past the fact that this woman was bleeding for 12 years. That's dramatic. That's drastic that's happened. Verse 26. It's vastly important to get to the core of what Mark is communicating to the hearers here. To, to, the, to the Christians in Rome and to us in 2009. She had blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She used all of the resources that she had. She tried to fix her problem. She went to what culture said, okay, you got this problem, go do this. We have a problem, we go to the doctor. We have, a, we have an issue, we, we go and try and get it fixed by our culture. She goes and does all that she knows to do, all, that she, all the resources that are at her disposal. She goes and tries to exhaust them, but she is still left, not just where she was, but her matter grows worse. Want us to to know the extent of of what's happening in this woman's life? She is a Jewish woman, and the Jewish people are uh, they adhere to the, to the Levitical law. the The Old Testament there were twelve tribes, and Levi was a leader of one of those tribes, and all the people of the descendants of, of this patriarch Levi became the priests. They were the ones who, who wrote the law. They were the ones who said the law. They were the ones who communicated. They were the priests. They were the preachers of the Old Testament. And their writings show up in the book, in the, in the Bible, in a book called Leviticus. So all the rules that the Jews had to follow are mostly found in the book of Leviticus. And I want to read for you a few verses from Leviticus chapter 15 and understand who this lady is. She's been bleeding. She's basically been on a 12 year period. Leviticus 15, 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge of of blood beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness as in the days of her impurity. For the Jewish people in the day, those three or four or five days a month, they are unclean, which means they can't have any sort of sexual contact. And, and even in extreme cases, they can't have physical contact with anyone. 
let alone their husband. And now they're saying outside of those days, if she continues on in her bleeding and continues on in, in her menstrual cycle longer than normal, stay away from her. She's unclean. She continues to be unclean. Let's keep on because it keeps moving forward and, and putting more roadblocks between her and the people around her. And again, this isn't this is kind of weird stuff to us. The Levitical law is kind of strange stuff to us. To them, to this lady, it is it is gospel. It is the truth. It is what she patterns her life around. Not just her, but the people that, that are around her. They pattern her life around this stuff. So if, if this says do this, then they're going to do it. Verse 26 of Leviticus 15, it says, Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. Basically, the bed she sleeps in, it's impure. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. The chair she sits in in her house is unclean. <coughs> and whoever touches these things shall be unclean. So, if she had a husband, her husband is probably gone. Has either divorced her or left her. Because he's not allowed to sleep in the same bed. Not only is he not allowed to sleep in it, he's not allowed to touch her bed. He's not allowed to touch her chair. This is the, the cast off that this lady is. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days. And after that, she shall be clean. This stuff in Mark doesn't really say if there was continual, like every day blood was happening. But there is no period of seven days that happened. So this lady has been unclean without physical contact of any kind for 12 years. And not just physical contact, but not anyone. No one even comes to her house. She has no friends, no people that are associating with her for 12 years. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one of these for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. She needs atonement because something, their mind, something has happened to this woman to cause her to be unclean. So she is totally socially, physically, in every way, an outcast to society. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in her midst. So she can't go to church. She can't have associate associations with anybody. This is who this lady is. And what does Jesus do with this woman? He loves her. He brings her in. He allows her. He heals her. He, he loves her faith. He loves her impure faith. He loves who she is. And he cleanses her. She is unclean. She is alone. And she is marginalized. I want to talk about that word marginalized for a second. That, that is the ones in our lives, the ones in our society who are pushed off into the margins. We don't care about you. We don't want to pay attention to you. We would rather go on living our comfortable lives and pay attention to you. And if we are to be like Christ, we are to embrace, embrace the marginalized. Who are these people in our day that we push off? We say, you are unclean. We don't want to have anything to do with you. We will not be in relationship with you. We will not be married to you. We will not be any of those things. There are probably classes of people or individuals of people who we want to keep away at our sides. And I want you to, to, to ponder and think, maybe even write a name down of somebody who you marginalize and see if we are to really truly be like Christ, we are to do what Jesus does with this unclean, alone, and marginalized lady. Remember, she was if she was married, she's now divorced or she's left and she's got no one that's close to her. So, pick our, back our story up in, 
in Mark chapter 5, verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Remember, this lady is so unclean and people know who she is and, and she probably stinks and it's just a nasty person. So she's probably clothed in, in, a, in a large cloak so nobody can tell who she is. And she sneaks up behind Jesus and wants to touch her garment. And, and implicit here in, in what's being said here, let me read this again. She had heard about the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. There was a... A mystical, magical notion among this day that any power that a person had was transferred to their clothing. And so this lady brings some mysticism, some magic to this, into her thinking and think, all I need to do is touch this guy and the power that's in him will have been transferred to her clothes and will transfer to me and I will be unclean. She's tried everything. She's gone to the end of herself and now she's going to encompass some of the, the mysticism of the day and to, to cause her faith to be, her faith to be a bit impure, but it's a beautiful picture that Christ uses, even that impure faith to heal her. Verse 28. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Her faith mixed with mysticism of the day. Verse 29. And immediately, again, the urgency that Mark writes with, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And, and see the, the beauty of that moment for this woman for this lady she had been marginalized because of this disease that she had no bearing on it was just part of who she was she didn't decide she didn't do anything to get this disease it just happened to her and now she will no longer be ostracized she can enter back into society she can have maybe even have her husband again or have relationships again people will be able to come to her home and she'll be able to connect with people again because of what christ has done And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone from him, immediately turned about into the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? The disciples are like, Jesus, what's what's going on? You're nuts. There's no way anybody can know. Verse 32, And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down there's humility again before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. There is so much beauty in this simple verse. First, she had spent all that she had. And we connect with that because we try to fix ourselves so much. Trouble arises in my life. My instant reaction is to man up and fix it. She comes to the end of herself and comes to Christ with impure faith. Jesus corrects her mistake by saying it's not the clothing, but it's faith. It's your faith that's made you well, not touching my clothes. But the thing to land on and for us to really consider, he says, go in peace, be healed of your disease. This word healed is the Greek word sozo, and it's used 103 times in the New Testament. I'm sorry, it's the word healed. Healed in sozo is used 103 times in the New Testament. And it simply means to save and, and means rescued from perishing. This is an active verb and the woman is the passive agent. She is just sitting there and she is made whole. She is made right. She is saved from her uncleanness, saved from her brokenness in an instant. 
And then the word peace is irony. Irony, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God, content with its earthly lot. Christ has healed her and given her peace. Content with her earthly lot. Content with what's happening to her, what's in her life. And it's the gospel in big, bold words. The gospel is here beautifully. This woman has a disease that causes her to miss out on life, to miss out on relationships, to miss out on joy. This woman has a disease that causes her to miss out on relationships and miss out on joy. She is bound to her uncleanliness. She is bound to it. She didn't do anything to get it. She can't do anything to get rid of it. She is bound to it. It is chained to her, her uncleanness. She can't live a full life. She can't do the things she wants to do. She can't live the life she was meant to live it. But Jesus comes and interaction with Christ and brings her peace Brings her this shalom that we've been talking about. Brings her this kingdom that we've been talking about. Do you see the beautiful gospel that's here, that's present in this lady's life? The, the brokenness that's in her, the fracture that's in her, causes her to miss out on joy and relationships. And just a mere encounter with Jesus. A mere encounter with her having impure faith allows her all that to be gone. And Jesus brings to her the shalom, brings to her the peace, the kingdom of God that we were made to live in. We were not made to be outside of relationships. We were not made to have hardship in our relationships. We were made to enjoy relationships with each other. We were made to enjoy relationships with God. We were made to enjoy relationships with, with everyone. And this woman can't do it because of something that she had no power over. Something that she didn't do. And something she came to the end of herself. She couldn't figure out how to get past it. But Jesus comes and allows her to get it. Brokenness leads her to humility and faith. And that drives her in despair to fall in humility before Christ. A song that we've sung before, a song that, that we got to come together and write, uh, says this, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let them glory in their low place. My brokenness has caused me to look up and see your love. Read that again. I want to read that again and, and, and connect with this story and connect with your brokenness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, God, thank you for bringing trouble, to bringing tragedy, to bringing difficulty into my life. Because that brokenness has caused me to look up and see your face. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let them glory in their low place. Thank you, God, for making me worthless. Because it's caused my brokenness has caused me to look up and see your face. Without this uncleanliness, this woman never runs to Jesus. Without despair, this woman never runs to Jesus. Jairus, without his, the, the death of his daughter, without that, he remains the, the synagogue leader who plots to, to take power away from Jesus. Without that despair, he never looks up and sees the beautiful faith, face of Christ. Can we live in that moment thanking God? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let them glory in their low place because my brokenness has caused me to look up and see your face, to see your unfailing, steadfast, perfect love. 
Do not fear your brokenness. Do not fear your hardship. Do not fear your disease. Embrace it. Love it. Because they are vehicles that take you to God. They're things that take your mind off of yourself and put them on Christ. See your, your trouble as that. Verse 35, we go back to the ruler, the synagogue, Jairus. While he was still speaking, that is Jesus talking to the woman who was nameless because she was in the margins. While he was still speaking, they came to the ruler's house. There came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? We revisit the first story. The child has died, but Mark is relating to us here that Jesus is not bound by death. Upon, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus is, is dealing with this lady here, and he overhears over here the story that's going on that, that she's dead. And he comes to Jairus, looks him in the eye, and says, do not fear, just believe. Jesus underscores faith. Do not fear, only believe. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Jesus is going to leave his earthly ministry, the plan of God, the redemptive plan of God throughout all of mankind to men, and importantly, these three guys. And so he wants them to see the shalom, the peace come so they can experience it and see it. And he brings them in on this great healing that's about to happen. Verse 38. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. I want to impart some some wisdom to you from the 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 age of what's happening here. In, in this age, a religious leader, everyone who called themselves a Jew, and everyone who called them a religious person who was a Jewish person, this was what would happen for when someone died. They would have to hire professional mourners. That is, if, if somebody, uh, one of us were to die, we'd hi- have to hire a professional mourner to come in and lead us in chants. They would chant something about, God, please take this woman, or God, please take this young girl. Please... Allow her to come into your presence. Please save her. And then they would respond and just go back and forth. And the intensity of the chance and the, the, the volume of the chance would increase and increase and increase until eventually this professional mourner would be chanting very loudly. And the people that were, were chanting after this, this professional mourner would be chanting even louder. And so that's what's happening in this home of this religious leader. So he's this dignified religious leader. Everyone, even the poorest of the poor, was required by the Jewish law to have these chanters come and lead them in these these death chants. And the religious leader would probably have had seven or eight of these people and and harps and flutes around the outsides of the room. So there's a, a vast amount of people in here happen, going through this, this ceremonial death chant. And that's what is happening when Christ says, Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. This uh, chant has really got to a crescendo. And there's just a massive amount of weeping and wailing happening because they think that this little girl is dead. Verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus differentiates between these two things. He's not dead, but sleeping. To Christ, death is eternal separation from God. 
to Christ, death is eternal separation from God. What's happening here is this woman is sleeping. That is, she's been removed from the physical world. That's what is happening in Christ's mind. Uh, I want to... I got. Some of you guys know that Charlie Baker, uh, his mom died uh, on Wednesday this week. And I got to go down, uh, Jen and I went down Friday night to go see the, uh, the visitation for them. And uh, Charlie related this, this fantastic story. Um, she died like 3.30, 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. And so Charlie's sister was there with him and, and she called all... Charlie's got two other sisters, three sisters in, in total, and then a brother. And she called all them, and they immediately went. went. And uh, apparently, she died immediately. She was dead before. She was walking down the hallway, and she, she was dead before she hit the floor. And they called the paramedics, hoping maybe, you know, somehow they could shock her back into life or, or something. Uh, but she was dead when the paramedics got there, and, and they drove her back to the hospital, and, and they were just double-checking everything, and, and they had pronounced her dead at the hospital and instead of calling the uh the the funeral home immediately they the doctors and nurses said let's let her wait here because i know your your siblings are coming let's let her wait here so they can say goodbye to her here rather than after she's made up and after she's been uh all the funeral home stuff done to her and so uh charlie relates the story from from that scene is uh the brothers and sisters are all kind of sitting around the, the father, uh, and he's, I don't know, 75, 80 years old, and sitting there next to next to his his deceased wife, and over and over again, God, I loved her. God, I loved her. God, I loved her. And then he said, uh, man, I, I just wish that that could have been me that's laying there on that table and she would be alive. And then he said, he said that and, and talked about that for five or ten minutes, and then there was quiet in the room and he said no no i don't want that i don't want her to have to experience the pain that i feel right now i don't want her have to i wouldn't want her to have to be alone i wouldn't want her to have to experience life without me I, she I, I love her too much i want to be the one to suffer instead of her and it's it was it was a beautiful moment to to see and the the to see the the emotion on Charlie's face when he was saying, Charlie, you guys know him. He's a strong, studly guy. He, he doesn't get overcome by emotion, and he was overcome by emotion in that moment. And 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 the, where, where we were in the the funeral home when he's relating his story, Charlie's standing right here and right in front of me, about where where Josh is sitting, is his dad and. And you can see his dad kind of hearing the conversation that's happening. And he just, he's listening to the story. And then he just gets overcome. And he puts his hand in his, his head in his hands and, and starts weeping again. And the, the pain that, that is in his, in his heart and in his face is, is, is profound. But then Charlie says, I told my dad in that moment, it's okay to cry. It's okay to, to weep. It's okay to, to struggle, to hurt, to wish for different things. It's okay to mourn. But ultimately, your wife is, is, is better now. And he said, you're right. And that's why I'm glad it's her up there and not me. Because I don't want her living in this broken world 
apart from me. I don't want her living in this broken world, having to, the, the weight of the pain of, of losing your husband. And it's, it's that understanding of the difference between what Christ calls asleep and what Christ calls death that paints the picture of what's happening here. When Jesus says, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Sleeping is what I got to see of Charlie Baker's mom in that casket. She is separated from the physical world, but not even close to death. Death is separation from God for eternity. And what's the response of the people in this room to Jesus saying these things? They don't understand. They don't get it. You and I wouldn't have understood. We wouldn't have got it in that moment. We would have known she's not sleeping. We tried to, we've tried to revive her. We would have thought sleeping was sleeping. They laugh at Jesus and he put them all outside. He said, you don't belong in this room. Get out of here. You aren't going to be able to experience the beauty of what's about to happen. Go away. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl or little lamb, I say to you, arise. I want to reset the scene of what's happening here. The people that are in this room, it's Christ, it's a dead little girl, and it's that dead little girl's parents and Peter, James, and John. Those are the people that are in this room. It is the intense loved ones of this little girl, and it is the leaders of the church here and it is God himself that's who's in this room with this little girl who has been dead now for a couple of hours probably and Jesus says to her little lamb rise do you see where I'm going do you see the picture of heaven the the people who love this girl with the greatest intensity in the world God himself the leaders of the church, the saints that have gone before us, that's who's in this room. The, the temporary death that this little girl has faced and seen, now as she opens her eyes, this is who she sees. This is the picture of heaven. There will come a day when we will be separated from our physical bodies and we will stand, we will, we will be lying, sleeping in the presence of Almighty God. And He will say, little lamb, rise. And we will open our eyes and see those who intensely loved us. We will open our eyes and see Christ. We will open our eyes and see the saints who have gone before us. That is the, this, this scripture is a picture of heaven. See that, own that. Saturate your mind with, with the beauty here. Taking her by the hand. Jesus Christ takes her by the hand and says, little lamb, rise. The picture of the church, the picture of heaven. And immediately, the sense of urgency that Mark writes with, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. These people got to witness the miracle of heaven happen in this little, this little bedroom. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. He said, nobody can know this because religious people are stupid and they don't get it. These are religious people. Trace back just a few hours ago when Jesus did another 
equally miraculous thing. And he said, go tell people. Because that guy lived among people that weren't religious and, and, and didn't expect things of Jesus that they shouldn't expect of Jesus. And didn't put Jesus in a box that, they want to, that religion wants to put him in. In this instance, among religious people, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. They're not going to get it. They don't understand who I am. They don't understand that I am the suffering servant Messiah who's come to save this world. He says, don't tell anybody, but instead go get this girl something to eat because she is now renewed with the physical world. She has physical needs because I have brought her back to life. In the whole of of this story, she in Christ has engaged two people, an outcast and a religious leader. They are helpless. He is helpless to save his little girl. She is helpless to have any sort of relationship. But Jesus has come and they understand their fracture and they come with an impure faith to to give to Jesus. These are the two encounters here. First is for us to principles for us to draw on is one to engage both the marginalized and the outcast and the people of prominence prominence in our society. If we're to be like Christ, this is who Christ is engaging in this moment. This is who we will engage. And second is to receive the understanding that even with a tiny dose of impure faith and humility, Christ responds to that. The man, Jairus, had an impure faith because he was not trusting of Jesus and, and he wanted to take power from Jesus. But he still came to the end of himself, the end of his religion, and came to Jesus with humility. Impure faith and humility. The woman, impure faith and humility. She had spots of of mysticism and magic tied up in, in what she believed Christ's power to be. Her faith was impure, but her humility was perfect. And last, take courage. Take courage. I've said this three weeks in a row. Take courage. In the midst of of whatever you face and know and understand that Jesus is in control of it. And, and I don't know, perhaps you're, you're not facing anything of great significance right now. And for most of you, I know that not to be true. Take courage for when it does happen. That there is going to come a time where you will be at the end of yourself. You'll be at the end of, of what your religion has to offer you. And go to to Christ with as much faith as you can muster with all perfect humility. And understand that Christ is teaching. He is breaking your bones so that you will look up and see His perfect face, His perfect love. So what does this mean for us? What is the point of this? And I've I've thought a lot and talked a lot even from our messages and and talked a lot in in individual conversation with, with many of you. What is the point? Why are we here? What is, what is North Church's role? What can we as a group take from this? How can we put a vision in front of us to lead and to follow and understand this? We are placed in relationship with each other to encourage each other with this stuff. It's easy for me to stand up here and say, trust in Jesus, have faith, have humility, come to Christ, understand that he's in control. It's easy for me to say that because I'm preacher boy and I'm supposed to say that stuff. But in the midst of it, when you don't know what's happening with your parents, you don't know what's happening with a friend, a, a loved one, a, 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 a husband, a wife, a, a, any of that stuff, you don't know, and, and it's the weight of, of brokenness, the weight of broken relationships is, is profound among you. 
it's really, really difficult to hear these words that are coming out of my mouth and say, yeah, you're right. I really need to trust Jesus in this moment. But the point of us being together in this relationship, in the context of this church, in the context of these relationships, is to encourage one another with the truth that we are encountering here and push each other towards that. That's why we have community groups. That's why we gather together. That's why... We have lunch with each other. That's why we have relationship with each other. Because Christ is, is putting prophetic words in our mouths to say what He wants to say to us. To, to say to each other. And we engage in relationships. And I say to you, if you aren't engaging, connecting with, with what God has provided you with here, shame on you. Shame on you. Jesus has allowed this to happen. He wants you to live in a relationship because He wants to bring life to you. Just like the brokenness of, of these two people. I don't know what I'm gonna do. My daughter is dead and my religion won't fix her. What do I do? Christ brings the kingdom to her, to Him. This other lady who's had total outcast in her life, she has no relationships of any kind. Christ has brought the kingdom to her. That's who we are to each other, to bring the kingdom to each other, to remind each other of who Christ is and what he's done. If you aren't engaging in that, there are opportunities all over the place. It's your fault if you're not engaged in them. It's my fault if we're all not engaged in them. Let's put this vision in front of us and understand why we're here and then get past just that that we've grown okay at and and been comfortable with and push it to the the outcast, the marginalized, and, and engage that culture with this, this beauty. We are all fractured. We have this fracture in us, and we have this ability to speak the kingdom. God has placed it in us. We have this knowledge. Let's go and, and live in this society and engage the marginalized, not just the marginalized, but engage the, the puffed up religious self-important people like Jairus. Engage them with the kingdom of God. Engage them with their brokenness and see the beauty of what Christ can do when we follow what Christ actually did. And that was serve while suffering. That's I, I, I reiterated the point of, of what Mark is about. Presenting Christ as the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant, so that we can get to, to the end of this, to understand that we are to suffer as Christ suffered, to serve this world and serve this planet, both the marginalized and the the religious and the, the, the self-important and the, the strong, proud, and seemingly powerful people. That is who is here. Ultimately, Jesus gave this woman what she couldn't give herself. Listen to that and and see at the heart of it. Jesus gave this woman what she couldn't give herself. And Jesus gave Jairus what his religion couldn't give to him. And Christ is always about pushing us outside of our comfort so that we have no one to depend on but him. Let's spur one another on towards that and let's bring the kingdom of God to a fractured culture. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the truth of your scripture. I thank you for community that you allow us to live in. I thank you that you have given us an opportunity and given us each a vision and a passion to connect with here in this place, God. Lord, we are our failures at bringing the kingdom of God But Lord, I pray that you would so overwhelm our brokenness as to see light shining in us that we can portray to this world, to both the marginalized and the proud.
God, we submit to who you are and we want to be like Christ. We want to be the suffering servants, God. We want to be at the end of ourselves because at the end of us comes you and the beauty and the relationship and the wonder that you give to us, God. Connect our hearts to that truth, God. Be with us now as we respond to what you said to our hearts, that we stand and we worship you in these beautiful ways you've given us to, to pray, to, to give our, our resources, our money to what you've done, God, and, and to sing songs, God, and to partake of, of communion, Father. Be with us now. Change our hearts. Rest with us, Father. Allow us to worship you in pleasing ways, Father. Allow us to worship you in real and honest ways, Father. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you for Jesus and his brokenness and his sacrifice. It's in his awesome and perfect name that I pray. Amen.